So this is Tuli, huh? Yep. You guys are good friends? Oh, man, the best. Since way back in JD. We lived off and on together since, you know. We were living in an abandoned boxcar when you told me about Sart. Sart? Yeah. Really? Yeah, don't let the clothes fool you. That there's a real renaissance man. Philosopher, artist, musician extraordinaire. He lived in an abandoned boxcar? Yeah, apparently Chris and this Thule have known each other for a very long time. They He, he also mentions um, after our Sioux line days, we ended up in Skokie, which I guess is Skokie, Illinois. I wasn't sure what Sioux line meant, and I, I just looked it up. Sioux line, I think, is referring to a railroad company. So maybe they were also train hopping. I mean, they mentioned JD, juvenile uh, detention. So... They've been kind of cutting up and uh, wreaking havoc and maybe doing sort of like uh, small-time crooks work. You know, they, they go back, I guess. Partners in crime. Well, the Sioux line, the Sioux line is uh, a reference to the boxcar, is it not? Okay, yeah. That's, oh, because <laughs> I get it, yeah. Living in a boxcar on the Sioux line railroad. Ah. The boxcar days. Interesting. Are you familiar with the children's book series, The Boxcar Children? Uh, no, well, let's see. That kind of sounds familiar, but what's that about? Yeah, the premise is that there's four orphans who decide to live in an abandoned boxcar without any parental authority. <laughs> so it's just fun. like solving mysteries. <laughs> yeah, uh, solving I used to mysteries. That. I like it. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, let me make sure. I thought they did. Yeah, no, they do. They do. They <laughs> did like solve mysteries around the neighborhood and visit their grandfather. Love it. Wait, 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 wait. Hey, 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 hey. What, what are we talking about here, Lee? <laughs> We're talking about. Uh, the television series Northern Exposure back in the 90s, over 30 years old already. And this is the Northern Overexposure podcast where we try to overanalyze every episode and sort of try to bring a little more attention to the show. We invite a guest on usually every episode, someone who has never seen the show before to sort of, uh, you know, see see how it stands up to like a, a fresh, some fresh eyes a new viewer. And Charles, in a way, this is your first time watching every episode. So you've been, I mean, we've been watching the show right now through the fourth season, but uh, this is your first time watching the episode. Yeah, this is my very first time watching it. And I gotta say, for this episode, this was like peak Northern Exposure, but not in a good way. Oh, like, interesting. I would say that this is one of my least liked episodes in a long while. Interesting. You know, I was uh, just looking over the credits before we started recording um, refreshing my memory here. So, uh, well, obviously, air date, October 19th, 1992. And the director was a Charles Braverman. The writer, Jeff Vlaming, who we know from The Final Frontier, from the third season. It was, I think, <laughs> I think one of our least favorite episodes. Actually, I got that wrong. We quite liked The Final Frontier. When I was recording, I was thinking about the episode Three Amigos, which Charles and I famously did not appreciate. That episode was not written by Jeffrey Vlaming. But it was an episode where we talked about Jeff Vlaming, the writer uh, of that episode, was sort of like a, a freelance, just a guy who wrote a spec script for Northern Exposure, and it got picked up by CBS. So I, I'm wondering if, I think we assumed that the, the script that, that kind of got him into show business was for the final frontier for that episode. But um, uh, anyway, you know, I think we talked about it in that episode. Uh, Jeff Vlaming went on to work a lot with um, the X-Files, kind of joining the writing staff there, uh, and has gone on to have a, a pretty prolific career. But um, yeah, got to start with a spec script for 
Northern Exposure, and he's back now for this episode. I feel like with this one, it was like they had like a little bit of a grasp of what Northern Exposure was about. Like it's very out there, philosophical in nature, introspective, and they didn't follow the recipe book too well. Mm. Like they, they kind of had the ingredients, but then they go down to list. So <laughs> I think this is one of those, uh, you know, swinging for defenses, I would say. Gotcha. Well, let's see. So this episode is called Heroes, by the way. I forgot to mention that. Heroes, season four, episode four. And uh, let's get into it, I guess, right? Yeah. So we begin with Chris in Ruth Ann's shop, and he's looking around for some miscellaneous stuff. And I couldn't help but hear that he was looking at some floss. And he didn't know whether he wanted waxed. Yeah. He didn't know if he wanted waxed or unwaxed. And Ruth Ann suggested that the... What was the reasoning she gave, which is not true? Let me. Well, let me he see. says he says, "What's the difference?" You know, and that, I did write this down. I was like, "What is the difference between waxed and unwaxed?" I think Ruthann says it depends how close together your teeth are, or something. Yeah, I think that it maybe has something to do with that. But there was a study done by the American Dental Association that said that there's really no conclusive difference gotcha. between the two. Now, you might be able to say that like the wax floss is more thick. So you do have an easier time going through your teeth, but it's usually just personal preference. Or it would be maybe harder if it, if you have tight teeth. But I think maybe maybe it's a more of a marketing thing where waxed floss you could say uh, maybe ha- is a little easier to kind of squeeze through your teeth. I did read when I also was reading about this, looking into it, that unwaxed floss. You know, if you've ever used unwaxed floss, once your teeth are clean the floss sort of um, squeaks on your teeth, you know, if it doesn't have wax on it. So that's a way of kind of knowing that you've gotten all that junk out of your teeth. Yeah, maybe it's more of a oh, marketing thing. Hurts. <laughs> yeah, that hurts just hurts to think, to think about. about. <laughs> yeah. Um, I guess there's also flavoring. I don't know. Can you can get, I guess, can you get flavored um, non-waxed? Uh, it, again, what do we, <laughs> we're on, on this tangent about, Floss, but honestly, I did have to ask myself that question. What's the difference? <laughs> well, it turns out that Chris actually has a package out in the back. Yeah. It's a very large box, and it turns out that it's human remains. Yeah, it, yeah, giant box. It's pretty much a casket inside there. And uh, yeah, I think um, that it's you know revealed that this is, <laughs> this is a body. I, I don't remember if he says it's Thule, but you know, right after this scene, cut to opening title music and uh you know well let's let's keep on this Thule train maybe or yeah yeah so we see chris is with the body and he has maggie visiting him and she's kind of asking him questions about what his relationship with Thule was and chris is saying like you know he was sort of uh you know my partner in crime he was more than what you imagined him to be based on his clothing we talked about philosophical ideas um talked about famous philosophers and uh, I just don't know how I'm going to go on without him, is generally how Chris feels. Right. It's that opening soundbite that we played earlier. And, you know, this this ties into the title Heroes because Maggie will bring it up by the end of the episode. Um, Thule is sort of like a hero to Chris. It's a, um, I wouldn't say father figure, but a role model. You know, like, because they're, I guess they're not necessarily contemporaries around the same age, but, you know, as we said, they go they go way back. And it was someone that Chris could could look up to. And I think throughout this episode, sort of the crux of the of the Thule thing is uh, 
the, uh, I guess you would say, the major dramatic question or the inciting incident of uh, receiving the coffin begs the question, you know, how is Chris going to give the, the send-off to Thule, who he doesn't want to, to say goodbye to yet? Yeah, I think it's a really interesting dilemma where you're presented with a problem of having to say goodbye. Like, you're the one that was selected to say goodbye, but you don't want to say goodbye. So the next little bullet point with this uh, Chris and Thule plotline is, uh, oh, wait, 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 we should describe kind of Thule. I mean, obviously, we sort of hear a little bit of of um, his qualifications in that opening soundbite, but his physical appearance kind of reminds me of maybe like uh, – someone you would imagine riding on a Harley. Like, you know, you know, Chris loves motorcycles, but this is like, this guy seems like a biker or something. Kind of big, I, kind of burly. I thought for a split second that that was Zach Galifianakis guest starring, <laughs> but then I realized, I was like, this, wait a second, this is like in 1994. Like, he, he, he was would like be much younger. Like teens. Guess, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but yeah, full on beard. Uh, yeah, Zach Galifianakis is one way of, uh, of trying to get that mental picture, I think. That's a good uh, descriptor. Um, anyway, so so the, uh, I was saying the next little bullet point in the plot line is um, it's going to be kind of hard to talk about because we haven't introduced this other character that's coming in. But Chris is kind of standing with the open casket, kind of like talking out loud to Thule, you know, literally just saying stuff like, I don't know what I'm going to do with you. You know, what, what am I supposed to do next? He, we get the sense that Chris maybe always asked Thule or always looked to Thule for answers maybe whenever uh, that was maybe – their their dynamic uh, as friends, but uh, no. Okay, so updrive Ed and this new character who we could talk a little bit about now, uh, Brad Brad Bonner. Yeah, so Brad Bonner is this punk rock. He's punk rock, right? Or is he metal? I got that very confused. I don't know. I think he says punk rock in in the uh, in this uh, episode. We I think we maybe hear some music that's supposed to be attributed to him in this. But he episode. says, yeah, go ahead. He does say to Ed that metal is supposed to be really big. Okay. He's like a rocker. That's all I can say. <laughs> he reminds rocker. me he reminds me of uh, Harry Styles from okay. uh, One Direction. He's kind of got that look <laughs> of him. And yeah, he finds himself in the town of Sicily, though it's not really described why he's there. Like, did he get Sicily in Italy, confused with Sicily, Alaska? Yeah, I think, I guess that's it. He mentioned something about his manager, Mink, you know, sent him to the wrong. Like, he, he's in Sicily. He's like, yeah, here I am. I've arrived, but it's uh, not. So this, this is like, didn't they make this joke in the pilot? Or, you know, this is some, uh, this is some territory that we haven't seen in a, in a while, you know. But I feel, like, I feel like that should get mixed up more often or something. I don't know. <laughs> Yeah, I, well, we find him here, and, you know, I don't really like him. Like, not as, like, yeah. against his character, like, his, like, personality traits. Yeah, I mean, well, we should say, uh, this Brad Bonner is played by Adam Ant, who is, in real life, uh, a British rocker, you know, famed from uh, the group Adam and the Ants. Uh, he's also gone on to do a lot of other musical projects and a lot of other acting projects, too, but... um. Anyway, yeah, in this particular uh, incarnation, he is playing a, uh, a pretty, I don't know, how would you describe this? Um, well, I don't know. It's interesting because we, we can kind of go through the plot lines. He, he seems to maybe have some pretty creative ideas, but I think, the, I think the, what I got out of his storyline is his ego gets in the way. 
of everything. Right. I think that he even compares the song We Are the World to I Am the World. So he thinks that, (laughs) you know, he's as big as that. And yeah, yeah, he even has that scene with Chris where they're talking with each other about the influences that past musicians have had on him. And he had mentioned that he didn't listen to anyone beyond 1987. He was also very ignorant of uh, Jimi Hendrix, which isn't to say those are reasons to dislike an individual, but he just seems like they wrote the character purposely in mind just to be very shallow. Yeah, I'm trying to give him the benefit of the doubt, though. I mean, his his reasoning, he says, I don't listen to anything after whatever, 1987 or, or whatever year he says, because he doesn't want, uh, he wants to have completely original music. He doesn't want it to be tainted by past, you know, because that is a thing when you're writing music. You write a song and then you're like, wait, this this is just this other song. This sounds exactly like, so you're like constantly trying uh, not to let too much of that seep in. Um, but you know, at the end, I think you're right. It is kind of a, kind of reveals him to be more of maybe a shallow character and we can get more into Brad, but let's focus on, so they roll up Ed and Brad, they've been doing some filming together. Ed has been filming Brad and, uh, they roll up to this scene with Chris. He's kind of talking openly to Thule and, and the casket. And, um, I don't know if we could even bring this up, but like the, the Jake Paul is it Jake Paul or Logan Paul? Do you know like that that whole the I found a dead body in the woods? Like I think that's it's Logan Paul. I just I just had to look it up. But what I'm getting at is that Brad is like trying to philosophize, I guess, with Chris about life and death and, and make something uh, very deep and meaningful. But it's just all for the camera. You know, it's for uh, to to make Brad Bonner. Uh, the rock stars seem to be maybe more thoughtful or something. And, and that's why it kind of triggered that image of the Logan Paul, this infamous video where Logan Paul was uh, in the, um, the, it's kind of this infamous forest in Japan where people will go to commit suicide. And Logan Paul was like kind of filming in there. And a lot of, uh, I guess, commenters and people online Thought, thought it very disrespectful. That's kind of what I got from from Brad's treatment of, of Thule in this scene. Oh, right. Like, I get what you're trying to say. Like, it was a very... They're trying to turn a moment that seemed organic, but it's actually inorganic in the way that they're presenting it. Yeah. Because he would constantly stop and say, like, oh, wait, film now, Ed. And then he would go on a tangent where it looked like you just caught it off the cuff, but it was actually, you know, entirely planned right there. Yeah, I think he even says, like, all right, Ed, uh, get a shot of the dead guy. And Chris has to be like, that guy's, uh, he has a name, Thule. Like, do you even know who this person is? I thought it was strange that it looked like Chris was humoring him a lot. Like he got what this kid was trying to say and he didn't dispute it. He didn't call him out on it. In fact, he like played along. Well, here, I don't know. I mean, like he, he definitely tries to give him the benefit of the doubt, but I also wrote down like, I don't think I've ever seen Chris angry like this before. I thought, you know, he wasn't outright, um, yelling at Brad or like confronting him, but you could tell like he was annoyed, you know, right? At least I, I saw that. Yeah, I saw some annoyance in his eyes and I thought he was going to pop off a little bit more, but right. no, he kept this cool and it kind of kept uh, humoring him on his philosophizing. Yeah, I think I wrote down Brad Bonner says, death, what a scam. And I, you know, Chris is <laughs> just kind of annoyed by this whole interaction. Oh, but uh, I kind of like, I wrote this down, Brad's idea of the afterlife. Because uh, throughout this episode, Chris talks a lot about, I guess not so much about the afterlife, but different um, 
burial traditions throughout history, uh, throughout humanity, I guess. But um, Brad's idea of the afterlife, uh, I thought was pretty interesting in the scene. He says, um, he thinks of it as like, what if your spirit goes into the things that you loved the most before you died? Fragmented, redistributed, like a chain letter. Uh, and I, you know, I don't, again, I, Chris is maybe humoring him here, but I don't think it, the point really comes across. It's not, not the right time to kind of like talk like this, I guess. But I thought that was an interesting um, point of view. Wouldn't that point of view just means that like you died doing what you love the most? Yeah, in a way, like you could think of it as like uh, maybe the thing you love the most is your could be your legacy. If you put yourself into what you love and what you do, uh, you know, you can be remembered that way, not just uh, by your name, but just kind of like the mark that you make in whatever you love, be it music or even just like maybe this house that you built or this guitar that you owned. I think uh, I think Brad says like imagining like his spirit going into his like guitar and into his amp and into, you know, his microphones and stuff. That's That's how his spirit will live on. So it wouldn't be Northern Exposure without uh, a dream sequence. We get sort of this, I guess you could call it, we don't ever see like Chris sleeping or waking up, I don't think, but this must be a dream because Chris is kind of dressed as Jesus and he enters this uh, restaurant. I think there's like a neon sign or there's a marquee that says the Last Supper Club. So the Last Supper painting, you know, is recreated with uh, Chris sitting in the middle of the table, uh, all these, I guess you would call them apostles on either side, though they're kind of they're kind of dressed more in a in a more modern way, while Chris is in these like Jesus robes. Um, oh, I also wrote down Joel is the Mater D here. He's like he's there for some reason. <laughs> yeah, it's the twelve apostles. They even got the names, even the professions right. Oh yeah, uh, they were going down the list, and they were saying it. And that was actually uh, some of the professions of some of the apostles. Um, I, I always thought it was weird that Judas got the profession of a thief. But if you go look more into that, I think the reason they call him a thief is because he's like a tax collector or something. Let me yeah, make sure. Yeah, isn't like, well, I know at least like in Shakespeare, there's always like the, I, I, what is it, the Merchant of Venice? There's like the evil tax collector who is a Jew. You know, that's always like, yeah, I don't know if Judas yeah. was a Jew or not. But um, Oh, he's he's a were treasure. Were they all Jews, right? Oh, go ahead. What's he, uh, that? He's a treasure. So he, he would like collect, and manage the money, which somehow makes you a villain. Like I don't, <laughs> he's just doing a job, man. I, I'm not, I don't subscribe to Judas's extracurricular activities, what he did to Jesus. I'm not, you know, I'm not absolving him <laughs> of that. I'm just saying that like, I don't think you should criminalize someone for just being a treasurer. I don't, look, I don't think that's wrong. Look, man, I think that's just the way artists respond to, uh, to treasurers, to accountants, to lawyers, you know, maybe because artists get screwed so much by money. So, you know, I guess you could call you could call the Bible art or whatever you want, but even outside of the context of the Bible, just in uh, just in media, I think they're always given a bad rap. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm not quite understanding of this uh, dream sequence. Like, I'll say the obvious one first: Why are they trying to do the Last Supper in here? You know, I didn't even think about that. Yeah, let me let me uh, give me a second. Honestly, yeah, like how, like why? <laughs> Can you? I feel like this was one of those like far-fetched ideas that sounds good because it's far-fetched, but not because of its substance. So 
Like, I, I wasn't. Maybe, maybe I'm just not getting something. Maybe there's some sort of key component that we're not realizing. I mean, I'm not Christian. Uh, I don't know too much about Jesus. But um, well, I'll say this. I mean, even if there is a significance that we're missing, for me, I it kind of it didn't bother me. I wasn't in a spot where I'm like, wait, why? Why is he Jesus? I just went. I just went along with it, I guess. But um, man, I'm really gonna be scratch. I'm. I know I'm gonna be like editing this, and then I'm gonna know. Boom. Oh, that's why. What is that word that means? Is like I guess it's blasphemous. Like like uh-huh, offensive yeah. to religious purpose is blasphemous. Mm-hmm, yeah. I'm not even Christian, but I almost felt blasphemous <laughs> at this. It's like, why are they using the Last Supper? <laughs> oh, you don't think they earned it? It's like you can't do that. You can't. Um, I, I just, uh, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I guess putting Chris in the position of Jesus Christ is someone who sacrifices themselves, uh, dies, and is reborn. But I feel like you know maybe the Christ figure should be Thule. You know, because that's the person who died. Um, he didn't die for somebody's sins, though. Like, he's not like he gave up a greater sacrifice. He just... He, yeah, okay. Chris is just having a idolization of this individual. And yeah. He's having a hard yeah. time letting it go. But, like, in no way does that correspond with Jesus Christ. Well, idolizing Jesus is one way to, to think of it. Like, the way Chris idolizes Thule maybe is a, is is some somewhat religious but you're supposed to hold on to Jesus though right like for the rest of your life you're not you don't let him go right yeah i, I don't yeah this metaphor is kind of lost on me for now um but anyway we'll come back to the last supper club cuz we do return to this dream but what is next oh there's a really cool scene where chris is kind of walking down the street and joel has to run up and kind of talk to him about uh you know, look, you can't keep a uh, can't keep a dead body just lying around for you know more than twenty four hours or something. Let's see, let's see what Joel says. Hey, Chris. Hey, Joel. Did you know that when one of their slaves died, the ancient Gauls dig a hole in the ground, big shaft, put the body in, stand it straight up and down. Uh, who did that? The Gauls. Is there any choice of final tournament for the Hebrew world? Well, as a matter of fact, yes. Um, the, the basic burial is your primary choice. In the ground. Within two days, which is actually why I wanted to talk to you regarding your friend in his casket. Thule. Right. I just don't want to have any knee-jerk decisions being made. You know, eternal rest isn't something you should rush into. No, no, I, I understand, but um, unfortunately, in the eyes of the Attorney General's office, it is. If Thule wasn't embalmed, you'd have to have him in the ground within 24 hours. Shoddily embalmed, you have 48 to 72 max. Seeing as how he, he was obviously dead before he mailed himself to you, I, I'd say we're pushing it. I know. I know. Well, it's my responsibility to tell you that aside from the law, we have uh, certain health risks to consider. I mean, look, uh, a body begins breaking down as, as soon as a person dies. And uh, granted, in, in Thule's case, it's been slowed down a little, but I mean, eventually. Put it this way, unless you know the entire medical history of the deceased, you can unwittingly transmit any number of things. You could be hepatitis or... or... What you're saying is, sooner than later on this deal. Th- this is what I'm saying. You're right. Okay, thank you. Yeah, Joel's got some pretty good, like, medical dialogue in this episode. Yeah, I always like it whenever Joel talks doctor. It makes him look <laughs> makes him look professional. <laughs> but isn't there actually like a religious ritual for people of the Jewish faith um to deal with the burial of the body? There is like the um the Kaddish, like the mourner's Kaddish is what it's called. It's like a prayer um that you'll typically say when someone passes away. Though the ritual is um it's actually sort of the focus of uh, another northern exposure episode later. The ritual is sort of like it requires a certain number, maybe like seven or 11 Jewish men 
to basically say the mourner's cottage prayer ad infinitum for like 24 hours or something uh, before you're buried. Like there's, you know, it's a whole thing where sort of like how we do funerals, there's like visitation. Um, I guess this this ritual, this practice is uh, in, in the Jewish religion, the Jewish faith, uh, you know, there's a certain number of people that need to be there you know, sort of paying respects, but kind of just chanting this prayer. I've also heard of another Jewish religious ritual. I think it's called Shamira. Interesting. I don't know if I've heard it. So what's that? Yeah, I think it's the one where somebody actually watches over the deceased body until burial. Like, I, I think it's supposed mm. to be guarding their spirit so that they can rest peacefully at the end. Okay, yeah, I'm just looking it up now. I don't think I've, I don't think I've heard of that, but... Yeah, it definitely makes sense, and it kind of fits into the idea of, like, the Kaddish having people uh, kind of at all times, you know, with this, uh, with the dead body. But um, also, it's funny, you know, like, Chris asks Joel, you know, what's it, what, is there anything that the, the you know, that Jews do whenever, um, for, for, like, a funeral, for burial? Joel just, you know, he gives the simple answer. There's so, there's so many traditions, I guess, in this faith that uh, he could have he could have talked about. <laughs> yeah, it, that's it's surprisingly there's not a lot about um, the Jewish uh, sort of like funeral rites and rituals in this episode. Though there are a lot of uh, references to many cultures' um, funeral rituals, I guess. Well, in a way, Chris is actually doing this because he's always with the body right. ever since he receives it. He even yeah. has a dinner with it. So in a way, you could categorize it as him guarding the body. Man, that is a great scene. I don't know if I really took notes for it, but you just reminded me, like, there is a scene where Chris, oh, he makes the famous, I did take notes, I think. He makes the famous Chris burger. Let's see, what's the recipe? I've got it written down. Yeah, I I don't know if there was a recipe, but he said it was black on the outside and red (laughs) on the inside, like... uh... Yeah, it's two, two pounds of ground beef for one patty charcoal black on the outside like you said red wall on the inside basted with everclear also so if anyone wants to try to make the crisp burger uh you probably you might want to steam it or something because it's probably going to stay red in the center <laughs> or you know apparently i mean obviously you shouldn't um i know people like to eat uh, medium rare steak that's fine but with uh the reason why you should never really get a medium rare burger is uh, because all of that meat is sort of like ground up together. Uh, and if you know where the meat's coming from, like which part of the cow, and if you've butchered it properly, you won't really have to worry about the the same sort of like contamination as, uh, you know, well, if you're having a steak, you know, you sear the outsides and that's fine. But with uh, ground beef, it's a whole it's a whole other story. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, I could be mistaken, but I think it has something to do with like the, the bacteria that's bad for you is on the outside. So when you sear the steak, you know, the inside's fine. You get rid of all the bad stuff. You burn it off on the outside. The problem with the um, burgers is, you know, the outside is now the inside is the outside is the inside because you're grinding it all together. So it's really mixed. So you really don't want anything to be red in the center because some of that could be outside and, you know, it's it's messy. Yeah. All right. I can't believe he uh, douses it with Everclear. <laughs> yeah. I'm not really sure the reasoning there. I guess just because they probably loved Everclear. I think um, he mentions also in that scene where they're uh, either they used to drink cooking sherry or I think that's what they're drinking. Like they don't have any wine left. So he pours them like cooking sherry. And that's what I wanted to talk about. It's such a sad scene because, you know, in, in literature and in film, 
sharing food is, you know, communion and being together. And so we have this scene with Chris and Tuli, and they're sharing a sort of communion together, uh, this really special bond. You know, it's more than just the visual of the food. It actually, you know, usually will have some sort of significance. But but here, um, you know, Tuli's dead. And it's actually really sad because, I don't know, even though Tuli's not there, Chris can, can kind of go on and on and kind of live in this this uh, this dream that Tuli is there having having dinner with him. But when you finally sit down and plate up and pour the, the sherry out or the wine or whatever it is, uh, it's just a dead body there. Yeah, he can revisit all those memories that he wants uh, about the good times. But, you know, reality hits him right there and says, like, it, you can't go back to it ever. This is what you got. And now he has to just go forward with the body, which he's still having trouble with in this scene. Like, he doesn't know whether he wants to cremate them or do a burial at sea because each one presents a new problem within itself. Yeah, it's like more, every answer brings new questions. Um, Well, just kind of moving along, about halfway through or maybe towards the end of the episode, we actually do get to finally get to like a funeral for Thule. But, um, you know, it's in the chapel I think uh, Chris is sort of giving a eulogy. Um, Tooley's full name is Brian Grady O'Toole, born Irish uh, in New Orleans, Louisiana. He had seven brothers, two sisters. Uh, you know, it's he's kind of listing out. It doesn't really feel like the heart's there. It's more like he's reading uh, like the bullet points, you know, from whatever notes he has. He's not really, he doesn't have the spirit. And sure enough, he kind of walks, he, he walks out. He can't. Chris can't continue. He just has to leave the funeral. Yeah, the person, uh, Tuli, he's estranged from his family, right? Because Chris mentioned that he kind of set out on his own at a young age. Right. I think he, I think he, I, for some reason, I, I, I'm thinking of the number 11. Like, was he 11 years old or he was, he was very young when he, when he left home. Yeah, which would explain why there's no family members at this funeral. Oh, yeah, yeah. And why the body goes, went to Chris. Yeah, we didn't really ask, like, why. <laughs> I guess because they're such good friends is is uh, why. And they probably talked about it. Well, I guess they did talk about it. Because if they had talked about it, like, you know, if Thule, when he was with Chris, had said, Chris, when I die, this is how I want to go, then Chris would know what to do. But um, it's kind of open-ended. Anyway, so we're returning to the last Supper Club kind of dream sequence. And uh, I feel like it's at this point, things are starting to wind down. Like Chris is still there talking to some of the apostles. Uh, I actually don't remember the context. I, I have the line. Um, that's why they call it fishing, not catching. Do you remember what's going on there? Just after oh, dinner talk, uh, I guess. Yeah, I think it's talking about um, the attempt to catch a fish. Uh-huh. So that's why he's a fisherman or something. Uh, I, I just remember, you know, like they're smoking cigars one of them says, "Like it's a work, it's a work day for me tomorrow, or or something like that." And sure enough, the performer, you know, performing at this uh, last supper club tonight is Thule, but he's dead. Like you know, I think uh, Thule is on stage. He starts talking into the microphone, and Chris stands up and is like, "Hey, Thule, it's me, Chris." And one of the apostles has to say, "You know, he's dead. He can't hear you." <laughs> You know, I, I'm trying to remember. So, like, Thule has this great sort of, like, stage presence, like, very showbiz, you know, in this scene. He's got backup singers, and he's talking about how he's going to, like, tell you the tell you about the meaning of life or something. Yeah, he wants to give you the answer to the meaning of life, which is apparently 
Uh, the song "Old Time Rock and Roll." That that's the <laughs> yeah. meaning to life. The old time rock and roll by Bob Seger. You know the same song in uh, "Risky Business," where Tom Cruise is like dancing in his underwear. This is like at this moment, it's like, okay, what am I watching? Like this is so ridiculous, and it's kind of like they're they're being ridiculous to be ridiculous. Like they're they're kind of like going out of their way to make something silly. But you know, just as Chris starts to react in this scene, he's sort of like. At first, he's like, wait, wait, what? what is happening? And he looks around. Everyone's into it and, like, dancing. But slowly, he's he himself starts to get hip to it. And he starts, like, bobbing his head. And for me, uh, at least, this scene was sort of a way of saying, like, it doesn't have to make sense. Like, the scene doesn't make sense at all. You don't need to make sense of this send-off. Like, just feel it, just go wild. You know, that's kind of what the song maybe embodies or at least the performance here for me embodies that that expression. Yeah, I completely agree with you. I think it's not necessarily the song choice. It could have been any song. It's just the fact that uh, the way that you are handling it is the, the important thing. And he's trying to say like, you know, just be carefree. Just, you know, if you want to go bury me this way, go do it that way. I'm not going to hold anything against you. And in a way that is sort of the spirit of maybe rock and roll music or this philosophy that we're tapping on where, you know, we'll get to it, but on Brad Bonner's side, he's got his whole sort of um, deep, uh, in quotation marks, approach to... <laughs> his perspective on life. And it, I don't know, for some reason, it, it seems more, maybe more profound from Brad, but really I think what really works and what hits you in the end is this, uh, you know, you just got to stop making sense, just feel it, just go wild. So the next scene that we see with Chris has him laying six feet under. They, uh, he's dug himself a perfectly rectangular <laughs> plot. It's very well done if he just did it by himself. <laughs> and... Maggie kind of strolls up, you know, asks him, what's up? Yeah, she says, you know, what's going on? What are you doing down there? He's Chris is trying to think about what it would feel like, you know, for Thule to be uh, interred into the ground. Bur- is that what you call it? Just, you know, buried, buried under dirt. Um, she says, well, here, let's, let's, uh, let's play the bite. Hi. Hi. What are you doing? Just, uh... Wanted to get down in here, you know, feel for myself. See what it's like to be six feet under where Tuli would be spending eternity. How is it? Cold and dark, even with the top open like it is dark. Well, Chris, um, are you coming out of there? Oh, I suppose. It's just spirit taking wing, the heart shutting down. It's also biological, you know, I can handle that. But releasing Tuli, letting go of the man, it's hard. I like having him around again. I don't want him to move on. Guess Tuli wants that though, you know? To be let go. I just don't know how I'm gonna know how to do it right. He won't. He did. Yeah, Chris, but Tuli can't tell you. What am I gonna do? What do you wanna do? You know, uh, it occurs to me, just thinking about this and what Chris is going through, how he, he's not ready to let go. And you know how he's, he's uh, obsessed with the different burial ceremonies and rituals uh, throughout the different cultures of human history um, really kind of makes me think that, you know, the idea of a funeral and burial is in a way of just not not necessarily being ready to let go of somebody. The reason why we um, have funerals and burials is to celebrate the life of someone, 
to recognize them one last time. Like you, they're already dead, but you haven't let go, you know? And I, I think that really encapsulates, uh, you know, what Chris is going through is externalized through through the idea of, of burial, I guess. Yeah, it's almost like the idea of the funeral is mostly for the people in your lives rather than the person who actually died. Definitely. It's for them to cope with uh, your death rather than to, you know, immortalize you or make people think about you. <laughs> yeah. No, yeah, definitely. Yeah, you're already dead if, if it's your funeral. So uh, it matters, I guess, most to people trying to uh, to cope with it and trying to, to figure out a way to let go. But I got to say, I was really moved by Maggie's sort of empathy in this scene. I really liked... The the angles are really cool, you know, because Chris is all the way underground and we get to see Maggie kind of looming over him from his point of view, uh, you know, on the surface there. I, I, I liked this dialogue a lot. I really liked, uh, as I said, Maggie's empathy. And we see a little more of that in the in the final scene here, uh, which is actually Thule's funeral. Chris is sort of giving a eulogy, but he also asks Maggie, you know, to come, come deliver some words. Well, um... You know, I don't know if, if I've ever had any real heroes in my life. Maybe Amelia Earhart, Georgia O'Keeffe, Chrissy Everett, but they were more influences. But with Thule, Chris had a real-life hero, real flesh and blood, someone who taught him, inspired him, someone he could point to and say, I want to have his wisdom, his courage. I want to be just like that. That's a really great observation for Maggie, how she's saying that she had heroes herself, Amelia Earhart, Georgia O'Keeffe, but I like that she calls them influences rather than an actual hero. She's never actually met someone personally in her life that would make her feel like Chris has. And that really got me thinking about that a lot because, you know, she's had influences herself, Georgia O'Keeffe, Amelia Earhart, but they weren't heroes that she personally met like Chris has. And I really resonate with that because there are people in my life that if I read about in the newspaper the next day that they had passed away, I would be devastated because they played a very large influential part in my life. But I'm not entirely too sure if I have that same fervor for a real life individual that I would say like this person that I know personally is my larger than life hero. Yeah, because, I mean, obviously we can think of Thule as a very close friend to Chris. And losing, if you imagine losing a close friend, I mean, yeah, I mean, it's, it would be measurable. But also thinking about not only a friend, but if that person is like kind of what you're describing, a hero, someone that inspires you. For me, I guess it would be maybe the people who have taught me in my life, like literal teachers or I don't know. Yeah. Who are our heroes? That's a good question that this episode, or at least I think Maggie could help you, um, could kind of put into your mind with this eulogy is like thinking about it. You know, this is what Chris is going through. And uh, if you've got someone like that in your life, uh, a hero, you know, you can be thankful and grateful. She she says he's he's a lucky guy, you know? Yeah, yeah. Are you particularly afraid of meeting any of your heroes? Yeah, I think that's natural. I think I've actually met musicians that I really admire. And I think for the most part, I'm not the kind of person who will go up and say, hey, thank you so much. You've influenced me so much. Thank you for everything you've done. I've done it a couple times, but uh, 
I don't think I'm the type of person who, I think I would, yeah, I think I would be afraid to go. What about you? <laughs> I hate it whenever I see on message boards about like certain celebrities or like uh, large influencers being jackasses. Right. Because that just ruins the image of them. It's like, oh, I thought, I thought he or she was a, a really wholesome figure, but like it turns out they're a total prima donna or something. Uh, th- those suck. To read. But then again, I also kind of empathize with that to the individual because maybe they were just having a bad day. Like you can't always be on yeah. uh, 100% and polite all the time. Like maybe you just caught them in a bad day and then you just went online and just badmouthed them because, uh, you know, maybe a close relative had passed away or something. They just weren't in the best state of mind. Yeah, I mean, we kind of talked about this with the very the second episode of uh, the show uh, where Maurice is talking about heroes and sort of like building building people up onto a pedestal. Their one point of view is like, you know, everybody's human. Uh, the other point of view is like everybody needs heroes. Like we need, even if they are larger than life, there's no way they could really be, as you're saying, like 100% on it. You know, at some point, at the end of the day, they're all humans. But uh, I don't know. That's that's a very interesting duality to to think about of, I guess, celebrities, but also just inspirational people. You know, there's something that we can gain from uh, trying to aspire to be as great as these um, these heroes. Also, you know, <laughs> at the end of the day, I think uh, Maurice, uh, what was the conclusion in that? It was because of Walt Whitman, right? Maurice had to learn to uh, accept that John Wayne doesn't do all of his stunts. Do you remember this? The second episode? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, it's funny because there's also another episode that was very similar to that where he meets his old captain. Yeah, yeah. That's also great. Uh, I'm trying to remember the title of that episode. That was in the last season, though. That was one of my favorite episodes of last season. The episode was called Lost and Found in uh, in the third season. Oh. And it's weird, you know, Maurice is surprisingly absent in this episode for, for the most part. Uh, there is one scene. This, this is jumping around, but I do want to talk about it real fast with Maurice. It's like Maurice and uh, Holling, and they're playing pool, and they're talking about how... Uh, I think they're kind of talking about Shelly, but in general, how women, according to them, are attracted to superstars, you know. Anyway, the context of the scene, uh, the content is is not that important to me. But what I wanted to point out was uh, they're playing pool. I was trying to figure out what game they were playing because uh, I just rewatched The Color of Money, which is about nine ball. And in that game, you want to shoot the numbers in order, like one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. Uh, so what, the reason I bring it up is Maurice, he sinks the four and then he goes for the five. Um, but if you look at the pool table, there's a striped ball on it. Uh, there's a, there's a striped orange ball. I think there's like a blue and a purple stripe, which would mean if, if you're familiar with pool that they're playing with numbers above nine. So this couldn't be nine ball if there's like a 10 and a 12 and a 13. Um, and what's even, uh, more confusing is Maurice, the, the third shot that he calls is the five ball, but he already knocked it in on the, on the second shot. So he's shooting a second time. I think he probably just kind of forgot his line or was just making it up as he went on. I mean, he obviously wasn't, they weren't really playing pool, unfortunately. Sorry, I don't know why I <laughs> focused on this so much. All I can think about, whenever I see shots like that in uh, television shows or movies, 
all I can think is show the shot, you cowards. <laughs> like, come on, have your actors learn how to play pool so that you can get that shot of them actually getting it in. Don't try to do any fancy editing where you don't see it. Yeah, you're right. You don't actually see the balls go in. He just calls the shot and he's like, you know, he, he'll, he'll go on to the next one. Oh, that's what it is. He shoots the first one, calls the five, but then I think he misses but then he still takes another shot. I'm really confused. I mean, obviously, I've only played, I don't know what it's called, normal pool with where you're like trying not to hit the eight ball in, uh, nine ball, and uh, like cutthroat. You know, I don't know what game this might be, but anyway, sorry. Okay. Uh, I just, <laughs> I think I had literally watched The Color of Money the day before watching this episode. So my eyes were like glued on the pool table. <laughs> but uh, we haven't finished wrapping up Tully's funeral. So, uh, what can you tell us about that, Charles? Yeah, so it turns out that they're going to go back to that well and use that, um, is it a trebuchet? Like, what right. kind of, what kind yeah, of mechanism is that thing? They call it the fling in this episode, but yeah, and I think they called it a catapult in the episode Burning Down the House when it's introduced, but it's obviously, uh, we've looked into it, it's a trebuchet. Yeah, so to give them the proper send-off, he decides to load them up into this trebuchet and just launch them through this uh, this lake. Yeah, like soaring over the lake. Uh, this reminded me of the uh, the writer Hunter S. Thompson's funeral. Do you know about this? No, what happened with him? So he was really good friends with Johnny Depp, and I think Johnny Depp was, you know, it was said that he paid a lot of money for um, Hunter S. Thompson's funeral. Uh, There's like a huge, basically he was shot out of a cannon. <laughs> Was was his funeral? So it reminded me like a lot the of the corpse this. or like the ashes. Um, I think maybe it was the ashes. I guess yeah. I don't think they would shoot the corpse out. It would have been the ashes. I think, but uh, <laughs> it was a big spectacle of a funeral, you know, which is pretty crazy. But uh, you know, uh, as as you do with Thule. All I can think about whenever I was seeing the sh- different shots of the coffin being launched out of the trebuchet was if the coffin was securely latched. Like, what happens if they would have launched the coffin <laughs> off and it opened and, like, the body came, like, flying out into the lake? You know, I was thinking the same thing. I don't know why, but I think it was because when we when we saw the trebuchet in action the first time, it was flinging a piano. And uh, just the action of, like, flying through the air tore the piano into pieces. Like, it, it exploded again when it hit the ground, but it already started, like, breaking apart as it was flying through the air. So they must have really secured this coffin, uh, you know, not only in the uh, in the world of Northern Exposure, but on set. You know, whatever this coffin was, was not meant to break apart because it flew through the air in one piece and then it lands in the uh, in the water of the lake that we talked about. It's, uh, it's not very good for the environment. Like, I don't, I don't think that's <laughs> biodegradable in a lake. I mean, if it's like wood, you know, and uh, human remains... <laughs> I guess the nails of the coffin might not uh might not degrade as as fast. Um uh we we should also yeah, mention I actually I don't want to go yeah. I don't want to be on a watch list. I don't want to type of that in. <laughs> I was like, can a body decompose in water? And I was like, I'm not typing that in. We're definitely keeping that in. <laughs> <laughs> um wait, we should also mention that Ed is again driving that bulldozer without a helmet. He's the uh he's the person who gives the uh who pulls the trebuchet. To fling. Yeah, I think the way that they have it set up is that it's like a pulley system. Like they tied a rope to this tractor and then he just pulls it yeah. back to give it the uh the the momentum that it needs. 
And then I I don't really understand how it launches that. Like, did they cut the the rope, or is there like a button that he presses and it releases the rope? I, I didn't quite get the mechanics of this. Yeah, I don't know uh, how trebuchets work, honestly. But uh, wait, I do remember like a sword in the uh, in the episode burning down the house. Didn't he cut something with the sword, or am I thinking of something else? Uh, I don't remember that, but I know distinctly in this one that. I, I didn't see any cutting be done. Let me make sure. Let me make sure before I get we get emailed on this. But like I'm almost positive, like he just pulls it back. Yeah, I think I think you just have to pull it and it sets it in motion. But I don't know. But how? How does it set it in motion if it's still like the rope is still? A, a, no, 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 that's not even a question of physics. That's a that's like a. Let, let me watch the scene really quickly. Yeah. Like right when he's about to launch it. Wait, what? No. Oh, it's like it's like you load a bunch of weight and then you have to unleash it or something it looks like i'm not saying that the science checks out on this or like the math <laughs> checks out but like it looks like he is pulling the other end of the trebuchet so the thing that's giving the coffin the lift that it needs it's its own weight do, do you understand what i'm saying not at all i'd have to watch okay. i'd have to watch this okay, 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 okay. can you can you can you see this pen yeah <laughs> okay so like the way that it's working, from my understanding, and this is what's being depicted, is that there is a there's a rope right here. Okay. So yes. This is Ed Underneath it, the, the trebuchet, there's a rope. Yeah. The, and then he pulls it. So he pulls the rope. So when you pull it, it's gonna go naturally like this. It's gonna pull so, the back end. Oh yes. Okay. Yeah, yeah. But there's there's no way that like he pulled it so like he was going maybe like five miles per hour on that tractor, man. Yeah. All it would do is just go like this, and then the coffin would just fall down. Like there's no. That okay, thing so launches. <laughs> Which, There's which, no way. Charles, maybe it's like the torque or the swing arm or something, but what Charles is describing is, yeah, you pull like on the bottom end of the launching arm and the uh, – this is so hard to describe on, on <laughs> with, with no visual aid. <laughs> well, let me suffice it to say I'm looking up a design for a trebuchet and it does involve weight, like a counterweight that flings the payload is what you would call it. Uh, so I guess in the show, um, there is no counterweight. Rather, the counterweight would be the pulling force of the bulldozer. But yeah, what you're saying, Charles, is like you would pull the arm to kind of get the fling started, but it would just it would just land like 90 degrees up and the <laughs> coffin would fall off and hit the ground. That, uh, I, I that don't is, know. I'm not a physicist. That is a hilarious scene for a comedy film. If you could get it in a wide <laughs> shot right there, and he did exactly <laughs> what we just said. Like, Charles like, was like, get it in a wide shot. Comedy plays out in the wide shot. <laughs> I love it. And it, like the coffin would just fall <laughs> flat. Like, what? Just, it wouldn't even launch. Oh, my God. This is like the worst. I just it's so funny to talk to like Trent and again like I was talking about pool forever and that's like such a visual I was trying to describe the colors it's so bad for uh for podcasting but oh god well hang so on fun. hang on yeah there's a there's a small little detail that okay. eluded me now that I'm watching this on uh <laughs> on, a, on a second watch there's a tiny American flag yeah on, kind of like on the, uh, tied on the trebuchet yeah <laughs> tied to the trebuchet I'm not sure what that's about I guess just uh they were true Americans, you know, <laughs> true heroes. Yeah, it's made in America. <laughs> true. Um, anyway, we get some music here. On the DVD, it's a song called Time Stood Still by Camaro Danny. I really couldn't find any information about this song. It, it, it I will say it, it did fit pretty well, I thought. And it sounded like a pretty, um, I don't know, it sounded like a big song, a big moment. 
honestly, I can't find anything about the song online. But what actually, uh, uh, unfortunately, what, what really makes me sad is that the song that played during broadcast was Wider Shade of Pale by uh, Procol Harum. So like very classic, very famous song. Uh, but, you know, I don't know. I think I think the DVD music, it works, but just learning that fact kind of robbed the scene of, of some energy for me. I thought it was okay, the, yeah. the music they replaced it with. Right. It could have been a lot worse. This show has done a lot worse. But, uh, but I don't know. Just looking at that, the sheer fact that, you know, Wider Shade of Pale is such a famous, probably expensive or... I think the reason was like no one really knows who owns the rights of that song. It's it's a there's a crazy Wikipedia article about it, but um, no, replacing it with this song that I honestly couldn't find any any information about it. I don't know how they, I don't know how they found this song, uh, but yeah, okay, yeah, it it works. I think, yeah, that that's it. I mean, for for that plot line, we get like the slow motion coffin flying through the air. We describe that, and I think the final shot is we see the trebuchet sort of like rocking back and forth, almost like a metronome. Uh, and then we fade to black, you know, Joshua Brand, John Falsey, Joel Falsey, John Falsey. John Falsey. Well, let's rewind to the yes. second plot line that's happening in this episode. We have the character that we were talking about earlier, Brad Bonner, and he's going to Ruthann's store to pick up some Ernie Ball strings. Yeah. So Ernie Ball was this entrepreneur in the 1960s who started to notice that whenever people played guitars, they would actually replace the last string, the sixth string, with a banjo string on the top, which gave you a lighter gauge set with a plain third string. So it always goes from the thinnest to the thickest at the bottom. So whenever you're trying to play at the bottom of a guitar, it's uh, very heavy. Mm-hmm. So when people started doing this, he actually contacted a company. He contacted Gibson, who he had asked, saying, like, hey, why don't we start making these strings at the top that are much more lighter and they turned them down. So Ernie Ball decided to make his own company (laughs) and he made the product Ernie Ball Slinky. Yeah. I'm familiar with the brand name. Um, but yeah, I've I've never known too much about the history. Yeah. So it turns out that Ernie Ball Slinkies are actually used by a lot of famous musicians, Jimmy Page, Paul McCartney, Keith Richards. Nice. Yeah. Very, very popular name though. I guess if you're in Sicily, Alaska, uh, the best thing that you might find in this store is, I think she gives them like banjo picks or something. Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> that are dusty. They're very dusty, I remember. But um, no, so Shelly is also in this scene, but she's very quiet. Uh, she's starstruck, it turns out, because uh, she recognizes um, Brad, who previously in the episode, he just kind of walks into the brick. He's like, where am I? He's trying to kind of re- remain anonymous. We get the sense that he is a... Uh, yeah, he's probably a famous musician or something. And Shelly is the one to recognize him. Though Brad assumes that she might have been a groupie or something uh, on a past tour. But no, she's just, she's just a fan. Um, we learn a little history. Like, uh, sounds like Brad kicked his own brother out of the band or used to be in a band with, with his twin brother, Freddie Bonner, who was the drummer. Anyway, it's something that they, they talk about in the scene. You know, we get this. We get this introduction with Shelley, which we'll we'll come back to because that's sort of its own plot. But I want to say this scene ends with uh, Brad asking about a doctor. Yeah, he has a uh, carpal tunnel syndrome, according to Joel. 
because of the way that he's holding the guitar, which he is not willing to compromise on <laughs> because he thinks it looks cooler. So Joel decides to give him like a little brace, a little hand brace to help him stabilize his, uh, his wrist. Yeah, 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 yeah. He he ends up in Joel's office, and uh, but you know Joel offers him that hand brace, and he says, you know, I, this may not be your style, but you know, I, as your doctor, I gotta say you you should wear this to alleviate some of this stress and this pain. And you know, surprisingly, Brad is uh, pretty gung ho about it. He's like he calls it like the road warrior look, you know, having just having like these little strapped on uh, braces and stuff. I'm surprised he needs to go see a doctor for this. Like, it seemed like the cause was very obvious. It was like, I, I play guitar all the time and I'm holding it in this position and uh, my wrist hurt. What could possibly <laughs> be, the, be the problem? It's like, uh, have you thought about some sort of uh, wrist-related injury? Yeah, it's like, why does my wrist hurt? What do I, what do I ever use my wrist for? Uh, well, he does bring up that he used to like walk um, these Great Danes. He used to have huge dogs that would pull on the leash. But no, yeah, you're right. Like if you're... Brad Bonner, it's like, why does my wrist hurt? I think he says his manager, Mink, told him that it's like, it's because you're like, you're sleeping with your hand under your bum the whole time. But uh, no, it should be pretty clear. It's like, uh, what do I use my wrist for? I use it to hold the strings down, you know, <laughs> on my guitar. What do, what do I do for a living? <laughs> and uh, how, do, how do I apply that to my uh, to my problems? <laughs> so we get the next scene is uh, with Chris. Brad is sort of introduced to Chris. This is before the whole uh, coffin thing, which we've already talked about. Brad goes on to the radio with Chris. Chris talks about music's humble beginnings. 3,500 BC, clappers were scaring spirits away. Like, I guess they would go out into the fields and, like, clap two sticks together to try to scare spirits away or something like that. Um, does he say Mes- – I can't remember. Was this the line where he's like uh, Mesopotamia? 3,500 BC, Mesopotamia? Uh, I don't know if he gives out the year. Let me make sure. I'm wondering what culture it is. I don't think he. Let's see. Let me just let's let's just uh let's just take a listen. Oh yeah, yeah, you're right. It's he does say it at the beginning. Mesopotamia, 3500 BC. Gotcha. And we we kind of touched on this already. Uh, Chris asks Brad about his uh, musical influences. We talked about how you know Brad makes it a point never to listen to music released before 1987 it's got to be completely original if there is such a thing brad comes up with uh the idea i guess he reveals on air that he's got this idea for um a new show like while he's been staying in sicily he's got this uh this grand idea it's going to be culturally significant um, he's going to be jamming on his electric guitar accompanied by traditional Native American drummers. This is basically, I don't know, for me it was like red flag of basically like cultural appropriation, I think. You know? <laughs> oh, yeah, no, like 100%. Which I'm glad they, I'm skipping forward a little bit, I'm glad that the people caught on to that. They were like, uh, we don't want to appear in your film. Like, Oh, the, yeah, the drummers end up, they do end up quitting. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Disgraceful to our culture. Here's the thing is like, I don't think that necessarily anything that Brad proposes, a lot of the ideas he has are are maybe creative and, and uh, he is an interesting fellow, but I think the problem is his ego gets in the way too, too much and makes it too much about himself and less about the music. Like there's no reason to say that like, I mean, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe this is, maybe this is uh, offensive to, uh, Native American drumming. I don't really know the whole culture behind it, but I think, you know, I would imagine that music 
in a broader sense, you know, you could mix really anything together if you wanted to. Like if you're the artist, you know, ha- have some, there's no reason why like electric guitar and Native American drumming should never meet, but uh, I don't know. Oh, Maybe no. it just doesn't sound good. I don't know. Oh, no, no, no. I, I think you're right. It's just the way that he was presenting it is the issue that is wrong. Like they were mostly props exactly. behind him. Yeah. And uh, and he was, you know, the front man and he was doing like a modern guitar solo. I think that's probably why the Native Americans took issue with it. Yeah. And yeah, it's just his his whole ego. And, and we'll get to that, um, that scene. But uh, before we leave K-Bear, Chris uh, cues up a piece of music. He calls it Mondo Rondo by uh, Cathedral. And I don't think we ever, maybe I missed this in the scene with Shelly, but I don't think we ever figure out the name of Brad Bonner's band, if it's just Brad Bonner. But I think, because I think they mentioned Cathedral again later in the episode. Maybe Brad does. I think that's supposed to be his band, Cathedral. I thought they did reference his band's name. It was like the Serpent's Descent or oh, something. Oh, Serpent Cathedral, right? Oh, no, it is. He calls it with all the cathedral punters in the world. Anyway, yeah. So this song um, that they play is presumably supposed to be um, supposed to be Brad Bonner's music. But... Um, you know, I, obviously, I tried to Shazam it. It's only on for a little bit, I think. Uh, so I'm, I'm to assume it's original music made for the show, but um, I don't know. the The title Mondo Rondo is really interesting because I think, I mean, I could be wrong, but I think uh, Mondo Rondo means like uh, like round world, maybe like big round world. And uh, Brad, when he's describing, we're talking about kind of like we are the world, I am the world, like that whole idea of like after Sicily. Brad gets this idea of, of like kind of going global with this idea, but he he uses words like big and round and and the planet, you know. So I don't know. There's a there's a theme underlying uh, the title of this song and maybe some of the uh, aspirations that Brad has. It's probably uh, a reference to like a planet sized ego, maybe. Ah, yes, no, definitely. So in the next scene, we see that Ed naturally wants to meet with Brad because this kind of aligns to what Ed is all about. And he wants to make a film about his experiences here in Sicily. And initially, Brad's not okay with it because he thinks it'll ruin the aesthetics of the moment. He thinks that once you start to record, there's not going to be anything special about it. To which then Ed replies back. It's like, no, 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 no. We'll make it really low key. There won't be lights. You know, it'll be all about you. And... That's what persuades him to let Ed join along. Yeah. And, you know, I, I think Brad has good instincts here. You know, like I'm saying, like, I think his idea uh, is comes from a place of true inspiration, maybe. But um, it's only when, because, you know, he, he didn't want to make it a big show. He even said, like, I don't want, I want to be pure, no MTV stuff. He almost is afraid of maybe the cultural appropriation aspect. But uh, but it's it's just when his ego kind of starts to get a little bigger that, um, you know, for, in a way, it was like the moment that Brad arrived in Sicily and realized where he was, maybe he could start to step away from himself. But I guess the longer that uh, the longer that he was there, he started creeping back in and that ego kind of took over. Yeah, yeah. Um, Ed mentions that he got a bunch of free 16 millimeter film stock from the Coast Guard down in uh, Yakataga, he says. They just gave they were going to get rid of it. So they just gave it all to Ed, uh, he also references the famous documentary, I guess, yeah, documentary Nanook of the North by Robert Flaherty. Um, I think they also mentioned, like, they referenced Madonna's Truth or Dare, which I, I'm not familiar with, but I guess that may be more applicable to 
Brad Bonner being sort of like a pop musician. Yeah, yeah, this is where they talk about um, we are the world, I am the world. I, is it? I think it might be Ed who's who first says the the phrase "I am the world," but Brad latches onto it. Am I am I wrong? Right. Yeah. Yeah. No, no, no. You're right. Isn't there a isn't there a "We Are the World" part two? Uh, wait, what? <laughs> I'm sure I'm right on that. Let me see. Uh, apparently there is. I guess I guess it was for um, Heidi in uh, in 2010. Heidi. Haiti, uh, Haiti, Haiti. Yeah, I'm not sure how you would say it or properly <laughs> pronounce it. But uh, yeah, so I th- kind of remember this back in 2010. So what's going on here? Uh, apparently, Michael Jackson and Lionel Richie decided to write this song. It's called We Are the World 25 for Haiti. I feel like that once you pop the cork on this, like you said, to uh, desecrate the grave of the original We Are the World. You might as well keep doing it at this point. I, I don't know why we haven't done <laughs> Where's part We Are the World 3. Where's yeah, where, three? where's the third one, man? Come uh, on. Yeah. We got wildfires going on right here. We got COVID-19. This you is gotta... what this will solve racism. This will solve the wildfires. <laughs> sorry. Um, <laughs> sorry, it's just so sad. It peaked at number two on the Billboard. Oh, wow. Top 100. Yeah. <laughs> well, very good. Um, yeah, I imagine the proceeds probably went to charity, right? So, what what happens if it didn't? <laughs> it just didn't go to them. <laughs> oh my God, Jesus! I didn't know about this. So there's this thing. Um, uh, there's an SNL parody, and it starts off by saying. Recently, the music world came together to record We Are the World 2, a song to raise awareness of the Haiti earthquake disaster. Sadly, the song itself was a disaster, with several impersonators dubbing the parody We Are the World 3, raising awareness of the We Are the World 2 disaster. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, That's pretty good. Um, Okay, so Brad Bonner. Uh, Yeah. Um, Let's see. Brad is beginning to audition drummers for this project. They're in Joel's office, sort of the lobby, I guess, of the uh, doctor's office. Marilyn is, uh, you would almost say like the casting agent or something, but, you know, this is uh, this is just musical auditions. So she'll call like, you know, next, and someone will come in and start banging on the drum. And it's, uh, you know, I guess, uh, I don't know if this is traditional and this is just the style, but... Pretty much what these drummers are doing are just playing a constant steady rhythm, donk, 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 you know, on the drum. So, you know, really, uh, as long as you can, I don't, I don't know. It seems, it seems as long simple as you enough. Keep you don't, yeah, you don't really need to do too many extensive auditions. Just get, just get the right. Well, what we learn is like Brad is not really focused necessarily with the, the musicality or the um, skill of these um, these drummers. Just kind of their appearances because i think at one point he fakes to hire someone for you know they're filming he's like oh yeah you're hired man i love you this is great i really dig this but then when the camera's not rolling he says ed we can't hire this guy he's taller than me yeah so you can see that he's really concerned about the aesthetics of it rather than the actual connection between the two barriers um, because he's claiming that he wants to go cross boundaries like he wants to connect with the local people of sicily but really he's just looking for the next piece of work that will help elevate him to the next stage yeah at this point we can clearly see it's it's all ego now like he's yeah two two in his head uh you know joel joel rushes in and is like guys you can't 
what's going on here? This is a doctor's office. Uh, but he agrees to give them like 20 more minutes. But um, I did want to point out Joel's in shorts in this episode. Yeah, I know. <laughs> that, that never happens, especially um, toward the cooler months of Sicily. Yeah, this is uh, – I mean they would have shot this in October. Again, you can never tell the chronology of this show. But uh, yeah, it's uh, he's got his shorts on, you know. Uh, this isn't the parka season yet. We get a we get uh, some some uh, we get a scene of the rehearsal. It's not bad, you know. Brad is kind of like shredding the guitar. Well, it starts off with the steady pulse of drums. Got a lot of drummers on stage banging the drums, and Brad just starts shredding guitar and kind of that he kind of takes the spotlight, which uh, you know Ed is Ed is shooting film of this, and Ed's got some pretty cool angles, but it's clear that. Brad is uh, front and center. Yeah, he's taken over the entire production of this, to which the next scene between them shows, it's kind of a cool shot. It's uh, you, you only see the back of Ed, and you get a wide shot of the mountains and forest of Alaska, and then you see Brad having to walk, presumably the entire distance, because he just came out of the woods. He has to walk all the way over to the stage, and Ed informs him that the show is off. Yeah, so... Um as we said, the drummers quit. Um, they don't, they're not there. Obviously they didn't show up for practice. Uh, they don't want to play with Brad. Ed says, um, you know, they said they're, that you're very good. You're, you're a great musician, but you're like a pebble. Um, you're like a pebble in a shoe. So it's, you know, they, they didn't come out outright and say, it, you've got too big of an ego or you've got a big head. Um, but of course, you know, as the Native American way, I guess, as they're characterizing the show, they use like metaphor, uh, and uh, really, it just kind of they're, they're kind of maybe just annoyed by Brad from from that metaphor. That's what I got. <laughs> no, that's uh, exactly what I got too. It's not vibing. And finally, we see the last scene with Brad, where he meets up with Ed again, and he's telling him about his plans about going global, about wanting to start this not just in Sicily, Alaska, but also in the entire world. And he wants the rights to Ed's films. Right. He wants all of the film that Ed shot. Um, and <laughs> here, I just want to kind of play the bite real fast. We'll talk about it. Sounds like a very worthwhile idea. It is a very worthwhile idea, Eddie. And I'm going to need all the film you shot. You will? Yeah, for the intro of my big global piece. Wait a minute. You want to use my stuff for your intro? Brad Bonner, global. Well, all right. Mind you, we are talking about a one-shot buyout, no residuals or anything like that. Yeah? Yeah. Hey! Hey! Woo! <laughs> God, I love that. Uh, simply because, you know, Ed, you know, you should normally be sad. It's like the project's over. It's being taken away from you. But uh, Ed is just so happy to be included, to have his, uh, you know, because this will be, Brad is presumably a big musician. So if this is included in, in some of uh, Brad's material, like this, this could be really big for Ed. Um, but I love that. Uh, even after Brad says, like, you know, this is a one-shot buyout. There's no residuals or anything like that. Even after that, it's like Ed is not even listening. He's like, well, all right, yeah. <laughs> I thought that it was going to go in a different direction based on the way that Ed delivered his line of saying, like, you want to use my film yeah. for your project? And I thought that was when he right. was going to get mad at him, but uh, no. I guess that's the irony. That's like the comedic irony there that it's kind of like flipped there. Uh, but, you know... Ed is super excited. It's he's not going to make any money off of it, but 
if we got to be optimistic about it, this could be big. This could be big for Ed. If, if Brad can even get this off the ground, which if his ego gets in the way, we're not to expect anything out of this. But uh, Well, we do have that one last plot line between Shelly and Holly. Yeah. So we kind of mentioned that Shelly is a big fan and, uh, you know, there's that scene with Maurice and Holling where they're playing pool, of course, uh, some game that we, we don't understand. Um, and the, the whole plot line is sort of about Shelly's fascination with a uh, pop star, you know, which is, you know, not to be sexist here. That's, you know, it goes both ways. You know, people are infatuated with celebrities, male or female, whatever your persuasion um, but the focus, uh, here is Shelly. She keeps like, she, she uses the word kipe for like a steel. Like she kipes, um, Brad's handkerchief. You know, he, he maybe like left it on a table at the brick and she, um, put a plate on top of it so that he would, he wouldn't see it and pick it back up. So after he left, she could like hang on to this handkerchief, keep it, iron it herself. She's got this, um, I guess obsession, you know, with uh, with rock stars. Yeah, I think that Holling is right to be concerned about this. I, I didn't really understand what Shelley's uh, anger was from. Like, they try to frame it as an issue of Shelley's independence and how it was wrong of Holling to assume that they're tied together in their sense of status. But, I mean, she's gotten to the point where she's stealing handkerchiefs. She's building him lunch plates and everything. Yeah. Like, I, I think she is kind of going a little bit to concerning behavior territory. Yeah. Um, see, I think the thing is, like, uh, you're right. Like, Holling is jealous. And, you know, maybe he has a right to be jealous here. Um, but I think the problem, uh, his, his flaw in this episode, it's not that he is jealous. It's that he tries to make himself... He tries to save face himself by saying, you know, no, I'm not jealous. I, I just think that you, Shelly, are making a fool of yourself and it reflects poorly on me. So he's trying to like throw it at Shelly. And, uh, you know, whether whether Holling is right or wrong to be jealous, I think I think he's wrong to to not admit that he's got his feelings hurt in this way, you know? That's really what the conversation should be about. So I, I uh I'm I'm backing Shelly whenever she kind of uh Kind of hits him back with, uh, you know, well, if you think I look stupid, that's my problem. That's that's none of your business. So, like, if you're going to drive this wedge between us, you know, if you don't want to come out and tell me that you're jealous, try to bring us together, we're going to wedge it further apart, you know? Mm, okay, that's a good point. Yeah, the problem, though, is that once you go past that, though, like, let's assume that he actually admitted to his faults. Mm -hmm. That still doesn't make what Shelly's doing is right. Like, yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I, I don't think that she's doing a very, uh, she's not doing a good job of looking like she's very faithful to Holly. Yeah. I mean, I think I can agree. Like if it's an, if it's an exclusive relationship with, uh, Holling and Shelly, you know, Shelly maybe is kind of stepping out of line to, uh, kind of, uh, well, I don't know if she ever necessarily, she didn't really like throw herself at Brad. She's just obsessed with him. And I can see how that might make uh, Hauling jealous. Really, they just, I think the problems, conflict here is stemming from uh, them not being able to talk about it openly. Like, Hauling needs to say, I'm jealous. And hopefully Shelly would say, well, look, it's not like, it's not romantic or anything. I'm just like obsessed with this uh, rock star. 
I don't know. Does but she, is it? D- yeah, is that's it what, not romantic though. What is, like, what is Holling's obsession? I mean, sorry, sorry, Shelley's obsession. You're right. Like, what is she focused on? Is it just stardom? Does she does she want to be a groupie? You know, like, is that really what you know? What Maurice says is, I think I wrote it down. It's uh, it's almost Darwinian, is what Maurice calls it. Uh, he says women turn into libidinous sex fiends. So really, though, I don't know. Is that just the men talking about Shelly? Like, what is what is going on with Shelly? I should have paid more attention there. I, I, I mean, first of all, I think that's a sexist statement. Uh, I'm yeah. not saying that I agree with, <laughs> yeah. um, with Maurice right there. But I feel like Holling has a leg to stand on because even though Shelly's trying to throw it back at him and saying like, oh, you're being jealous and that's wrong. It's like, yeah, but you're exhibiting behavior that makes me want to be jealous though. Like, yeah, I get that. That's not a good feeling to have. But I mean, even at the end, she kisses him on the cheek. Like, I oh, okay, she, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I just don't see how it's not in some way leaning toward romance. And and I forget how does this ever patch up between them because I mean obviously it doesn't. obviously Brad leaves so that's I guess that's good for for their relationship. But <laughs> they don't communicate with each other afterwards. Like she looks out the window, and she's like, "Oh, there he goes." The next episode, the love of my uh, life. <laughs> the next episode, they're divorced or you know they're separated. <laughs> um, no, yeah, you're right. She looks out the window and Ed uh, gives her a cigarette butt that he stole for her. He kiped a cigarette butt. For Shelley, yeah, so she could remember him for his time here. It's just I, I don't know. I don't. I don't feel comfortable if I was in that relationship. If that happened, I mean, there's a lot of things going on with with Holling and Shelley. Um, I think that does it for this episode. I think uh, now we can toss to our guest. Um, this is someone who I think has seen the show before. Uh, this was maybe they saw it when. It originally aired, so this would have been uh, back in the 90s. Uh, but this is my good friend Morgan, who is a touring musician himself. Uh, so, you know, I just figured it would be appropriate to bring him on for the Brad Bonner episode. Uh, but I'm interested to see, I kind of briefly spoke with him about it because, um, you know, he, he's, it seems like maybe he remembered parts of the show. But it had been so long. So uh, it'd be interesting to see what his take is after all these years. Hello, this is Morgan Orion. Thank you, Lee and Charles, for inviting me to the Northern Overexposure podcast. I'm lucky enough to play in a band with, uh, with Lee. He is uh, a beast on the drums. It was uh, really interesting uh, to revisit the show. Um, I haven't seen it since I was a little kid. And my brother informed me that we watched it quite regularly as a family though that wasn't my memory. Um, I don't remember a lot about the show. I remember, you know, like a a plucky uh, Native American boy with a camera and, uh, you know, a sort of Ozu-like boringness to this. You know, as as a child, like seeing it, it it just seemed like just nothing ever happened. (laughs) Um, But... um, Revisiting it, uh, it was it was really fun, uh, and, I, and I really uh, thought it was a great episode. Here are some notes I took. I watched it with my brother and uh, his wife, Michelle, my brother's walker. So the first note was that the intro was way happier than I thought it would be. 
yeah, it was it was uh, it was pretty cheeky. And then I'm like, who is this English guy? You know, uh, I didn't entirely know what was going on. I think, and then I say, this show is very surreal. And then I'm like, is Thule is dead in the coffin? Is he actually alive? Is that the twist? And then I have a note that's just mutter because somebody said mutter, which is great. And then uh, this one says, English guy looks like Charlie Sheen asks for Ernie Balls, the strings, which I thought was great. He was asking, asking for Ernie Balls. That was Adam Ant, which I found out later, and I was very surprised. My, my, my brother thought that the doctor uh, was John Cusack when we were kids, I guess. And then there's these old dudes playing pool. And I'm like, who are these guys? And apparently my brother thought one of them was John Goodman growing up. And then there's a note that says, the guy that looks like Paul Rudd is making meals for Thule, doesn't know what to do with the remains. And then there's a, a note about the Last Supper Club dream sequence. And like, are there a lot of dream sequences on this show is something I'm wondering, I guess. Oh God, I'm, I'm going long on the time on this. Uh, <laughs> let's see. Oh, oh, Shell or Shelly is with the old guy. Like, I guess, like, she's with that guy. That's, like, pretty weird. It's awesome that the American Indians call Adam Ant a pebble in their shoe. Thule does a rendition of old-time rock and roll in, in another kind of dream sequence. Oh, they're going to catapult Thule. The whole catapult sequence is amazing. Yeah, when they're doing the catapult, there's a song that uh, we shazammed, which is Time Stood Still by Camaro Danny. And I couldn't find any information about this. And I'm wondering if it's like an original for the show, if there's members of the cast that did it, because it's a really awesome song. And also this whole premise, which I didn't quite understand, is that Bonner, this character, uh, the, the English rocker that Adam, the, the buffoon that Adam Ant plays, is he thought he was going to Sicily, Italy, and he ends up in Sicily, Alaska. And there's this whole joke about it the whole time, which is great. And Adabant does such a good job. But it reminds me of this story about uh, Calvin Johnson from The Beat Happening. And this was told to me by, by people that live in, in St. John's, um, Newfoundland. And, and they were saying, like, he was supposed to show up there for a music festival. And on the day, he called up and he was like, hey, where's the festival? And they were like, well, you know, it's at, it's at the street. And... He's like, oh, I don't, I don't see that street at all. And they're like, are you in St. John's? He's like, I'm in St. John, which is in New Brunswick. So he missed the festival entirely. I mean, it was closer than Alaska to Italy, but it was a very similar situation. Um, so yeah, that sort of thing just really does happen to musicians. Uh, oh, the episode is called Heroes, and we were, we were contemplating what that's about, and I guess the the musician is a hero to some of these people, uh, you know, obviously like Shelley and maybe Ed. And then Thule is also a hero to uh, that guy who looks like Paul Rudd, <laughs> who's great. The show is really, uh, really remarkable. Uh, you know, it was a lot of fun to watch. Um, there is a question I'm supposed to maybe talk about. I'm going so long. This is, you guys can edit this or something. Um have you ever been in a situation where you were stuck or didn't want to be in a place? And in the end, you hopefully gained something or found yourself changed for the better. It's a good question. I feel like being on tour, I've been stuck so many places. Like, 
being on tour is is a is a constant situation of of being somewhere that you you have to be for an allotted period of time and make the best of that situation whatever uh may come you know you're stuck there for a short time uh, but it might be longer if the car breaks down or if somebody loses the keys uh to the van yes it's sad to not be able to do that these days but you know that's a whole another situation that people find themselves stuck in um yeah that's one that i think about um there's probably more specific instances that i could go into but okay thanks so much for having me uh lee and charles and uh please edit this however you see fit i look forward to hearing the show thank you okay that was morgan with the guest commentary for this episode and it turns out that he watched Northern Exposure together with his family whenever he was young, which I thought was really interesting. I, I didn't picture this show being watched as like a weekly thing with your parents. Yeah, I mean, it, definitely it was popular at the time, so people were watching it. But I feel like it was like maybe what you're getting at, it was it was more of an adult show. Like I don't imagine kids watching it. Yeah, not even just adult themes. It was just too off-kilt for it was just too, a little bit off mainstream for it to be acceptable for every single family member. Like, it wasn't the Brady Bunch. Right. So, that's what I find really interesting. Yeah, I like how Morgan described it as, um, remembering when he was a kid, it was like an Ozu-like boringness. Um, <laughs> and I remember when I was a kid and my parents would watch, like, Seinfeld, I remember feeling the same thing. Like, it felt like nothing was happening. And it just felt so boring. I don't think I ever had that feeling because I never watched television shows with my parents because my parents don't watch TV. Interesting. Not at all. They've never had a show early in the 90s? Uh, NBC News. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I, I guess like anything that wasn't animated or like a kid's show, it just it seemed like, uh, I don't know, like a fever dream or like eating oatmeal or something. Just so bland. <laughs> <laughs> Got to really stimulate the kids with the flashy... What? cartoon with the spongebobs and stuff <laughs> uh let's see morgan says he remembered ed too like that was kind of the only m memory he had i talked to morgan before he watched and after he recorded um but he said he, he didn't really remember the show except for this ed character it was kind of the only thing he remembered yeah that makes sense because if you had to remember one character from the show it would definitely be ed like not the other characters uh are they're, they're first of all they're white Second of all, they're just not, like, out there. Whereas when you watch Ed as a kid, he's the closest to your age. And also, he looks cool. So, you know, it would really stick with you. Yeah, as a kid, that's kind of who you might be identifying with. Let's see, Morgan says, the <laughs> he describes the intro music as happy and cheeky. But yeah, it is quite, you know, we talk about this all the time. I think guests uh, are fascinated by the moose and the harmonica, whatever that is, going on. It's It's a very distinct theme song. I don't even think it's that great of a theme song, but it was wildly popular at the time, maybe because the show was, but I think I remember one of our guests, um, John Paul and Lee, Lee mentioned how he DJed his like high school dance and they played the, the Northern Exposure theme song at the dance. <laughs> well, hold on. Yeah. Morgan said that the intro was way happier than he thought it would be. Yeah. Because the beginning of this episode is like Chris getting a Human Remains, which is sort of dark, but then the theme song comes on and it's very, that like cheeky, cheery harmonica. And he mentions how surreal the show felt, which is true. I think that's a, a very defining quality of the show. 
And uh, dream sequences, you know, are huge in this show. However, I was just thinking about it when Morgan brought it up. Uh, you know, if you go back to season two, there's like a, a dream sequence, an episode, oftentimes more than one. But for this season, I think we've only had dream sequences in the f- in the first episode of the season and in this episode. Yeah, I think it's a strange dream sequence for him to hop on on. Uh, I like that he didn't really say how strange it was. Like, he took it par for the course. He was like, yeah, they're just having this really strange uh, old-time rock and roll <laughs> Last Supper dream sequence. Yeah, just on the topic of Thule, you know, singing old-time rock and roll, uh, Morgan also noted in his notes the word mutter, uh, which was the tattoo on Thule's arm. Chris has some story, some anecdote about how people often confused it with uh, mother or something, but no, in fact, it, it means mother. I forget why, mother. Or no, 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 sorry, they confuse it with murder. That would make more sense, M-U-R-D-E-R. But uh, I forget why exactly it's mutter. Anyway, there's that. I like how we thought that Thule could have a twist that he could still be alive. Oh, yeah, I love when guests like sort of you know, I, obviously guests are recounting what they saw, but I love when they try to imagine, predict what is going to happen in the episode as they're watching it. Um, yeah, wouldn't that be strange? That would be, and actually, I could see that happening in this uh, in this show, like someone <laughs> pretending to be dead and shipping themselves to Alaska, maybe to whenever you open the coffin, it's like, oh man, I've been waiting in here so long. I'm trying to like pretend I'm dead to avoid taxes or I don't know, something like that. <laughs> well, I escaped. thought that... Oh, go ahead, go ahead. I, I thought that it might make sense because that's why they were doing the Last Supper thing. Like maybe he comes back oh, to life after three wow. days. Yeah. And I like how blasphemous would that be? Yeah, I, I got to say, it's been uh, some time since we recorded the first part of this episode. Um, so it's been a couple days now and we've heard Morgan's commentary. Now we're recording this. But um, yeah, I still don't know the significance of why why Last Supper Club. Somebody lost a bet to like right then <laughs> today episode. <laughs> um, let's see. Uh, par for the course for our guests. Um, Morgan thinks Hauling and Shelley. That's a that's a weird combo. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we get some interesting like celebrity lookalikes from Morgan. He says. The last one I remember is uh, Paul Rudd. You know, this, the Chris Stevens is like this Paul Rudd-looking guy. I think uh, Morgan's brother, Walker, used, he, he said he used to think that Joel Fleischman was played by John Cusack. At least that was his memory. And maybe like John Goodman was Maurice, the Maurice character perhaps. Well, I can kind of see Maurice being John Goodman because I think at the time, John Goodman was on Roseanne. Right. As Dan Connor. Yeah, so that might have been, you know, it's around the same time era. I can see you associating it. I also like some of the anecdotes that Morgan shares um, about touring. I mean, like that was sort of his answer to the question that that we gave him. Like if he's ever been in uh, a different place and found himself changed for the better. But just touring is that, you know, is that I guess every day for touring musicians. And that I, I thought that was a... Um, you know, perfect fodder for like an episodic TV show because you can have this character who's just there for a short time, but, you know, really the experiences are, you know, so varied. There's so many things that can happen uh, just having this visiting character. I think that's that's often a lot of the subplots on on these episodes is a, is a 
visiting character. Yeah, yeah. I really like that answer too, being on tour. And it's kind of interesting because whenever you are on tour, presumably you're playing the same songs over and over and over again, but just in a different location. But you're having to play off of the audience each time or like the location of where you are. So even though you're playing the same songs, they're not really the same songs. They're slightly more different each time. So his experiences on being on tour is just that he's just not comfortable being in a different location each time, but like he gains something out of the experience of visiting all these small little towns throughout the way. Yeah, that's a good that's a good way to look at it. It's like it's kind of the same you, the same songs, but every performance has the potential to be and, you know, will be different because uh, the audience shapes so much of that experience. Last thing I've got that I've taken down is uh, I really like the anecdote of Calvin Johnson. And... Uh, <laughs> sort of the similar situation here where this Brad Bonner character is looking for Sicily, you know, like in Italy, um, but ends up in Sicily, Alaska. I think, uh, I don't know the exact locations, but I think Calvin Johnson was trying to go to a music festival in St. John's, but he's in St. John. Uh, so yeah, I guess that, that really, as Morgan says, that stuff really does happen. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's all I've got for Morgan. Thanks again for our doing this and watching the show and providing your commentary. And thanks for the compliment up top, uh, complimenting my musical ability. Charles, I will see you next week for season four, episode five. It's called Blowing Bubbles. Any predictions? Blowing Bubbles. Um, the first imagery that comes to mind is uh, a bathtub, you know, with like a bubble bath. Hmm. Uh, but what could that mean really make, for the show? <laughs> yeah, I can't really make heads or tails on that. I, I don't even know if that's an expression, blowing bubbles. It's going to be the most experimental episode of Northern Exposure. It's just a bathtub for 40 minutes. <laughs> like uh, like uh, Franny and Zoe, act two. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Isn't that like half of that book? It's like they're, the second half of the book is takes place pretty much all in a bathroom. Yeah, Zoe's in the bathtub arguing <laughs> with his mother. Well, okay, let's leave it at that and see uh, what happens next week. Charles, thanks for potting, and uh, yeah, I'll talk to you soon. All right, talk to you soon, Lee. Northern Overexposure Podcast is edited by Lee. Our theme music was remixed by Matt Jackson. Thanks to Laser Kitties for the podcast artwork, and thanks to Morgan Orion for being our guest analyst. If you'd like to write in, you can reach us at northernoveraxposurepodcast at gmail.com, at northernoverpod on Twitter, and if you like the show, please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com slash northernoveraxposurepodcast. And of course, thank you for listening.